Sonic Okay, uh, hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 52. Uh, we've been away for about a month, or at least I have anyway. Um, went on holiday. Uh, we took a break because we were filming some stuff with the Yamaha Tenorion, which is very interesting. You'll be seeing that coming out at Sonic State over the next weeks and months. Um, but I went to sunny Devon, uh, where it was, um, well, it wasn't sunny at all. In fact, it rained the whole time and uh, we all got really depressed. It was a really, actually a really bad holiday. For those who aren't aware of it, um, England has been seems to have been shrouded in storm clouds since about the end of May. So this summer has been truly terrible. The last two days have been torrential downpours where I live, and um, lots of places are flooded and people are being homeless. It's, it's incredible. I don't know what's causing it. But that's enough of me. Uh, at least we managed to round up a few of our uh, usual suspects, including um, uh, someone we don't hear from very often, uh, Dave Robinson from ProSound News Europe. How are you doing, Dave Robinson? I'm very well, thank you. I, I, I hear you're in a, a large boardroom all to yourself. Uh, I am, yeah, with uh, air conditioning, which uh, any minute now, I think some of my uh, extremities are going to freeze up and break off. So if you hear any cracking noises... Oh, if only I could get some of that down Skype. I'm quite hot here. Hmm. Uh, I, was, I was just away last week as well, actually, Nick. Were you? Uh, yeah, well, I was away for a few days. This might... Uh, I get an early plug-in for this, but uh, I was... Um, I joined Steve Cooksey on his around... Britain with a sound crew um, venture. This is a guy, he's a sound engineer, he's a um, mainly does sort of corporate stuff. He used to run a studio down in, in Cornwall and um, he's decided to spend the next, well, to spend six weeks up until about August 17th sailing around the UK in a 29-foot yacht and um, he and his mate Pete Kasky, who's another sound engineer are the main, you know, crew and they're taking people on and off uh, as they as they go around different parts of the of the um, of the coastline they wanted everybody to be in the in the sound industry and due to um, sound engineers going where the work is and not being available all the time um, he's had to make do with a few lampies and a few production people but um, and a few editors um, and, a, and a, yeah, a journalist. <laughs> but I joined him at uh, Ramsgate uh, a week last Sunday and spent four days um, Four days on the boat, going up the coast all the way to Wells Next to Sea, which is at the top of Norfolk. And uh, we ended up going through a massive thunderstorm. You were talking about the storms earlier. A massive thunderstorm off the um, East Anglia coast, which really was uh, the closest I've ever been to uh, being in a reenactment of Jason and the Argonauts. Really? It, it, two massive storm clouds either side of us with uh, uh, you know, lo- uh, lightning and hailstones. And um, I'd been a bit seasick earlier on. So I was looking at the land as a point of reference. And when you're in this kind of apocalyptic storm, uh, the, the last thing you want to see, but the only thing I could see, was size well be nuclear power station. Ah, <laughs> oh, I'm sure that <laughs> so, must have made you feel a lot better. So how Armageddon-like is that? Anyway, this particular hailstorm, um, it turned out, actually um, took out the main tent at uh, the Latitude Festival, which is where I was on Sunday. Big, um, big new festival which just started in the UK. And they had, the main arena was supposed to have a, uh, a 12,000 capacity um, marquee, um, but uh, the hailstorms um, ripped it to shreds. So oh in, in the end, Lord. they had an open-air stage. Oh dear, well that's a bit So tragic. there you go. So that's enough of perhaps the UK weather. Um, PJ Tracy, hello again, and you're not in the UK, and how's your weather been, and how have you been? 
I have been fantastic. Uh, the weather here in Minneapolis has been hot, and we are currently in kind of a drought. Um, we haven't been we haven't oh. been receiving enough rain for the warm weather crops. Maybe we should ship here. some of ours out there. Well, yeah. anyway, glad to have you aboard. Glad you made it back. And Dave Spears, hello. How are you doing? I'm all right, actually. I did think. you have you, Did you have a holiday? I did. Yeah, I buggered off for a week. Oh, really? Where'd you go? Anywhere nice? Spain. Ah. It was a uh, pre-school holiday cheapy bargain, and uh, the nipper moves from junior school to high school. So we kind of thought, hey, what's the worst they can do? They can't exactly uh, tell us off too badly. So uh, we took her out of school for a week. Ah, really? And you didn't get imprisoned? Mm. Uh, No, amazingly enough. Although I hear it's getting that way. In the UK, yeah, they've got some very bad laws. The problem is, is, as everybody knows, I'm sure he's got kids... uh, when you want to go on holiday, if you have to go in the school holidays, the, tri- the prices tend to triple, which is horrific, really. So a lot of people who obviously have been taking their kids out early from school just to sort of save a few quid on the holiday are getting prosecuted. The thing to do is to, is to go on holiday, but if the prices have tripled, then leave your kids at home. <laughs> if only. But then... <laughs> leave the window open, you know, and some food and a bowl. Yeah, like, a, well, like one of those little automatic cat feeders. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always had an, I had an idea for a, a baby feeding device. I don't know if anyone's familiar with uh, has had a hamster or a small rodent in a cage, and you get those or rabbits, and you get those bottles with a little tube that they kind of nibble on, and it just sort of gives them water on demand. I was thinking about that for a, a you could have an attachment like that for a baby's cot. So if they woke up in the night and were thirsty for milk or whatever, they just sort of reach over and have a mm. go on that rather than wake <sighs> wake you lot up. <laughs> You are truly frightening, truly frightening. <laughs> shall we uh, Shall we move on? And, oh, no, in fact, Mark Tinley, who seems to have disappeared. Hold oh, on I haven't disappeared, oh, I'm right. still here. I'm oh, sorry, Mark. But hello, and how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Good. I think, I think that storm that Dave was in was actually, because I live not that far off the East Anglia coast, but inland, obviously, um, but the lightning hit the telegraph pole outside our house. I was working away on the computer, and there was a bloody great big bang, and I turned around, mm. and there was all... Um, you know, like when electricity shorts out, you get those huge, big sparks that sort of fall on the ground. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah like welding. Yeah, one of them. One of them outside was a massive crack. It made wow, me jump out of my skin, and this thing fell down outside. All the electricity went off for a while. Oh, did you lose any telegraphic equipment? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> that's I fortunate. don't know why. Well, that's very lucky. Quite an odd feeling being out in the middle of water with no one else about, and a, a big metal pole sticking up in the air, and there's lightning to the left and right of you. It's, it's curious. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that's, that's very dangerous. Did you feel like you were about to reenact an episode of Frankenstein? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you up the mast. I'm rather taken yep. by the number this week as well. We've got we're on episode number fifty-two. Yeah, and like nine is my sort of personal cool you know, number that I like to make everything add up to. But 52 is actually our family one. And um, when I was younger, I lived in a house at number 52 Church Lane. Um, and my father had a car with 52L, I think. And yeah. That would have been a 1973 registration. And um, and he also had an X-boat, which is um, sort of an open 19, 20-foot sort of Sail, wooden sailing boat, which was X-52. If I can just throw this one into the mix, it's the 18th of July and 1 and 8 make 9. 
Oh, cool. Ooh. Yeah, excellent. That's um, all, yeah, very auspicious then. Right, well, it must be in you some way. Fields of the Nephilim will pay me now, then. Yes, yeah, so you'll get £52 <laughs> plus £9 late payment. <laughs> That'll be more than I've got so far. Right, then. Shall we move on and actually do some... Um, Please. ...do some stuff? All right, well, let's have a look at this uh, morphine additive synth. Um, this is from a company called ImageLine, and they're currently doing it for 99 bucks. And um, it looked kind of interesting, I thought. Um, did anyone else feel the same way, or was it just me? Hello, let me play a bit to you. I'm not sure if that translates down Skype, but, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's very FM sounding, but uh, additive synthesis, um, I, I kind of... I know that there was the Kawaii K5000, was it? I don't think I've ever actually um, come across it or used it, you know, in any way that I know in synthesis. Am I, am I missing out on something? I've downloaded their um, demo and I've tried it out and it seems to be um, a sampling and resynthesis, additive synthesis okay. style thing. Very similar to the thing that PJ recommended to me, the Ver... Verson Cube. That thing, yes. It seems to work in a very similar way to that, but I don't think that this thing... I think this thing's really cool, but I don't think it's quite got enough bands to represent the sound quite as uh, accurately as it needs to. Everything still sounds a bit like it's got a sort of a belly kind of edge to it, a little bit like an MP3 to me. It takes a sample of a sound and it analyzes it, and using, like, uh, FFT, Fast Fourier Transformation... Transformation. saves that information as uh, a bank of sine waves which change frequency and amplitude and so on over time and then it resynthesizes it out of sine waves so the additive synthesis part is the resynthesis one plus 256 other sine waves re-representing that sound that it's taken a, a snapshot of so it's a sort of I suppose it's like sampling, but lots and lots of different frequency frequency bands, isn't it? It, it sounds like it sounds like an incredibly um, laborious and long winded way of going around. Why don't you just sample it? If you see what I mean. Because what you can do with it after you've got it into this format is really quite amazing. The way you can time stretch things um, and just change uh, partials of the sound, so you uh, can okay, yeah. you can start mess- really messing around with the sound. But I still think that they need more banks to make it work it's also cheaper memory wise i believe after you after you resynthesize a sample you can get rid of the original sample or put it aside and and uh it doesn't take as up as much ram or as much disk space i mean i've I've, I've played with it and it's great for sounds that sound like fm sort of sounds it's really good for um organ style sounds pipe organs and um, electric pianos but not so much for real pianos right strings sound a bit like there's something wrong with them, but I, but you can't put your finger on it. There's a sort of a staticness to the overall sound of it that doesn't quite. It doesn't make it. It doesn't make sounds interesting. They sound very sort of like fixed in time. If that makes any sense? Is that the synthesis method rather than the actual execution of it in this plugin? Do you think it's just it's just kind of? I think it's the synthesis method. Yeah. Right. I well, think the plugin's excellent. The plugin is is a really good. Um, I mean, for ninety nine dollars, I I absolutely I'm going to have to go and buy that because um, I think it you know it does a few things well which nothing else does and and 
um, it definitely should be in my bank of synths, definitely. Okay, Dave Spears, are you, um, you're, you're a, a synth connoisseur. Have you, have you come across uh, additive? I know you used to use the Synclavia. That was had a fairly comprehensive additive section, yeah. did it not? Yeah, that was quite neat. Um, in fact, funnily enough, there is a kind of basic additive section on the Imposca. Whereas Mark's yeah. is brilliant for kind of bell-like tones. But what I really like doing is mixing it with the sort of more traditional synth waveforms. So you can have, say, you know, one of the oscillators with um, some additive stuff, various harmonics, and then mix that with a pulse width mod. And you can get some really quite beefy sounds. How many, how many harmonics can you add? Uh, 24 harmonics. Oh, 24. Oh, right. So that's quite... Fundamental and 24. So it's obviously not as comprehensive as this. But it's neat. It's, it's very neat for those bell-like tones. Also, um, Chameleon, I think. The oh Camel yeah, audio Camel thing, audio, that's, yeah. That's also um, that does a reset. Yeah, that's right. How would one, you know, would would you say, oh, additive synthesis? Oh yeah, well that's the classic bass sound or whatever it, from. You know, is there any kind of really kind of glaring examples of it that one could um, could point to if if you know one didn't know anything about it? Like I obviously don't. Uh, was the PPG stuff additive? I think it was. I think so. I'm not 100 percent sure. I know it was wavetable based, but I'm pretty sure there was an additive section on there. I mean, some yeah, of that's kind it, of very classic, kind of cold, clinical. Mm. Well, I, mean, I, seem, I seem to remember that you could draw in different frequencies, and this thing seems to have um, a graphs that you can draw in for amplitude and um, tuning of the different tones, and it, and it seems to take slices of the audio in time from beginning to end, and uh, like frames of an MP3, say, and each one of those has each one of those is synthesised and then morphs to the next frame. Sounds so incredibly can, complicated. I mean, I, well, I found that I could quite quickly change the times on the beginning of a, an electric piano and play around with adding all sorts of different frequencies and getting more click on the beginning of the piano, and re, and really like customise the sound quite quink, quickly. So for those sorts of things, it was quite good. Not so good for trying to emulate. Resonant filter. Oh, but I mean, taking maybe a stock sound and making it ever so slightly different in a weird kind of way is probably a good... Yeah, it could be quite interesting for that. I think it should have a resonant filter on it as well. There's a sound in their sound bank which sort of boasts we don't need a resonant filter. And I think they're wrong. I think you do. I think the, the, the combination of those two forms of synthesis could create something really cool. Well, like what Dave was just saying about the Imbosca. So it's worth a try, and at that price, I think that the, the, the it's on special offer. I'm not quite sure what the sort of full price is, but I think it's running on, at 99 bucks till the end of July. So it's worth worth trying out. I think you can get 32 uh, note polyphony out of it. It runs on uh, does it run on Windows and Mac OS X? Yeah, yeah, I ran it on Mac. Anybody can try it. Presumably, you, you're probably going to need um, XP at the minimum and uh, OS 10.3 point something up. I would imagine to run it. But, um, yeah, additive synthesis. Maybe it's going to kind of start coming into the forefront. Um, it would be good, I guess. Although, like I say, I don't really know anything about it, so I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't be good. Maybe it's a bad thing. <laughs> but go and check it for yourself. The new MN6 music production synthesizer. From Yahoo. Code name. Mimo. The 61 note portable synthesizer with incredible sonic power based on motive tone generation, real time audio control, USB connectivity, and computer integration. Bundled with Cubase LE audio and MIDI sequencing software. Create, produce, perform with the affordable and versatile MN6 music production synthesizer from www.mm6music.co.uk. 
That was an ad there from Yamaha UK uh, for the MM6 Minimo synthesizer. Uh, It's a pretty hot piece of kit, and uh, very kindly to celebrate the 50th episode, which was uh, a couple back now, uh, Yamaha have donated uh, one single Minimo MM6 synthesizer. To have the chance of winning yours, go to sonicstate.com forward slash compo forward slash mm6.cfm and you can have a chance to win. I'll keep the competition open for another week and then we'll announce the winners next time. Um, yeah, it was a report in the um, in the states about the decline of uh, Firewire uh, connectivity as a standard IEEE thirteen ninety four, as it's uh, sometimes known as. Gotcha. And um, it was uh, this um, organisation, market research organisation called Instat, reckon that from two thousand nine onwards, Firewire um, interfacing would uh, would decline. And it was, it was a bit of a kind of scare story because they were using um, camcorders and more sort of consumer-type goods uh, as, a, uh, as a benchmark. Um, and we did this. Uh, we sort of looked at the report, and we went to a couple of guys who are developing fireware technologies, for instance, uh, TC Applied Technologies, which uh, is part of the TC Electronic Group. Stephen Saffer. Yes, he was happy, yeah. And uh, he said, well, you shouldn't really compare camcorders with uh, um, hard drives and um, other audiovisual devices. It's curious that, um, you know, that Firewire was effectively developed by Apple, and um, they were using it on their early iPods, and they've kind of dropped that in for, for USB 2. My experience, USB 2, uh, although it promises more than Firewire, it's got, um, it's actually not, anywhere near as good you don't get a continuous throughput as you can do with firewire firewire you can max out the entire bandwidth and just kind of chuck tons of data down it and it seems to hold up to sort of continuous amounts of streaming either you know audio video whatever or just data whereas usb2 just you know really can't like for instance if you have two usb2 drives on a pc or a mac and you're copying between them on separate ports the throughput is is abysmal whereas you know to firewire to firewire is a much higher throughput does that have something to do with the particular controller chip in it, in those devices? It may well do, PJ, but I mean, I can only speak from the yeah. experience that I've had between the two formats, but I, that's a very good point. Because here's the thing, I, I don't own a, a USB 2.0 hard drive, but I've been considering buying a, a couple of them to hook up to my laptop to store sample libraries on. And um, I was speaking with some folks over at the Northern Sound Source Forum, um, specifically Aaron Dirk of Bella D Media, um, and they do um, sample library production. And he, he, yeah, he claims that their entire studio is based around 2.0 external hard drives. Hmm. There's a quote, actually, Michael, uh, Michael Goodman from Sentence. Um, there's a, I'm sure you put a link from the, uh, from the web, from the podcast to the Proceo News story. Of course um, I will, Dave. Um, but, um, I think Michael, Good- Michael Goodman sums it He's a very smart guy, Michael Goodman. Um, he sums it up as, uh, overall, Firewire will probably find its way into professional applications where mission-critical reliability, cross-platform compatibility, and standalone operation are the name of the game. Meanwhile, USB will be reduced to the consumer segment where lack of uniformity in driver support, setup 
headaches. An occasional crash and loss of data are clearly very upsetting, but nevertheless rather habitual by now. <laughs> <laughs> so completely dashed USB. Uh, they um, centers do make some USB products themselves, I would say. But um, you know, he uh, he clearly he clearly thinks there's a yeah there's a future for it. But I mean, the one thing that Firewire really needs to sort out, and it's particularly from a video point of view, is the connectors. I mean, because the connectors that come out of DV cams going into, say, hard disk recorders or whatever, are just rubbish, and they pop out at the you know at the most inconvenient times. It's a really, really poor. We need something that's got a pro lockable, you know, um, dust tight connector. I mean, that if they sort that out, that will make a really big difference to the the positioning of uh, FireWire for pro audio, in my opinion. Dave Spears, you haven't mentioned anything. Are you running any USB 2 hardware, or are you still FireWire? No, we're FireWire. FireWire to the hilt. And why is that? Is that just because it's more reliable, or what's the... Like you, I mean, I find that the throughput is just more reliable. Um, we did try a couple of USB 2 drives, but I don't know, you know, maybe it's just a psychosomatic thing, but it's, um, FireWire just feels more robust. Yes, even though it's got less bandwidth, um, you know, allegedly, because uh, FireWire's... Well, mostly Firewire 400 is obviously 400, and USB 2 is a theoretical maximum of 480, doesn't it? Mm. But uh, I don't think there's any uh, great um, evidence of that happening on a regular basis. I've got some LASE drives that have got both the interfaces on the back of them, but I've got Firewire on my machine, and I didn't think USB 2 was as fast, so I've never bothered to try it, to be honest. I just... um, uh, well, it, I mean, it is. I mean, I, we use USB 2 drives to uh, capture digital video too when we're working, you know, um, at the shows and what have you. And it seems to be fine for that, but it, it's, I don't know, there are just instances where it seems to have kind of bonked and you just don't know why. And it, you st- you lose once you lose trust in something, then you tend to kind of migrate to something that you have more faith in. And I think that's the thing about Firewire as we've kind of found through experience. So that story is a bit of a, um, it, it's just, you think it's scaremongering then, Dave uh, Robinson? I think to a, to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, if, uh, as I say, it's more of a consumer issue. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, I think the thing also is USB 2 chipsets are cheap to the point of freeness to put on motherboards and FireWire, you have to pay a kind of fairly hefty royalty to, I would think. <laughs> so that's the bottom line. Talking about royalties, well, how do you think about that for a smooth link? And I haven't been doing it for at least three weeks. The Prince cover mount, was it last weekend? I think it was last weekend. Um, the it was new, on Sunday. The new Prince album called Planet Earth um, was released in the UK and Ireland anyway, sort of exclusively as a cover mount on a Sunday paper in the UK. And this has really sort of thrown, it's, it's thrown the industry into disarray because people are sort of freaking out about it. Because basically the cover price was still, what was it £1.40 or £1.60? Which is what about three bucks, two two dollars eighty, something like that, and um, you could buy the Prince album in its entirety as a cover mount. And reportedly, what's happened is Prince has done a deal with the publisher of the newspaper, where they gave him. Uh, it says in the BBC article I read that it's it cost two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, which is about half a million bucks they paid to Prince for the license to its new album. And um, the paper actually sold 600,000 more copies. So they worked out it was roughly about even. They didn't lose any money. They didn't make any more, but they've gained 600,000 potential new readers. And, you know, maybe two, a percentage of those will stick. And Prince gets half a million bucks in one go from one deal. Has anyone got any strong thoughts about it? It's, it's just, it seems like quite a fascinating and fairly bold move. And a lot of people are saying that, that Prince is actually 
kind of you know the devil incarnate for for doing something like this. I think it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I really like it that he's done it. The music industry needs to be shaken up. I mean, let's face it: if you sign a major record deal, how much do you get? Eighteen percent. Oh, if you're lucky. I think ultimately, the music industry to survive needs to find a new way of marketing and selling music to people, because the record companies, you know, let's forget them and push them out the way because we don't need them anymore. So I think Prince is taking bold steps towards doing that. Well, what I, what I couldn't actually understand is if Rick, if Prince is actually signed, which I believe he is, I don't know who his current label is, but uh, there was a quote from them somewhere, um, that they actually allowed him to do this deal. I mean, how can that possibly happen? Well, because a lot of his revenue is going to move from sales of... Um, it's, it's a kind of almost a lost leader, isn't it? Whereas um, his, uh, his concert sales... And, I mean, look at the, the 31, 21 concerts he's doing uh, at the O2, which starts um, very soon. I'm going on the 14th, I think. Oh, really? Um, somebody, somebody bought me a ticket, can I just say. I'm not particularly a Prince fan. And I bought the mail on Sunday, but I haven't listened to the album. So that's kind of, you know, I've got it, but I don't really want to listen to it in a hurry. And, and, and that, actually, in a way, sort of um, is part of the, the undermining the, um, and devaluing what, what, uh, what music is and uh, making it into a, a cheap and disposable commodity, perhaps. And that's what, uh, one of the big problems, which uh, I would disagree with Mark, and certainly from the record shop's point of view, if newspapers are giving away albums, then um, you're doing the record shop's uh, out of a out of a, a, a chain of uh, you know a bite in the food chain. But it's weird because I mean, of what I've read, I haven't read a great deal about it, but I've seen that this album is supposed to be pretty. You know, it's like a kind of return to form, some say. You know, and it's actually quite good because Prince has had a bit of a wilderness, a few wilderness mm. years. I guess uh, this concept will just before his concerts in uh, in the UK will help to. Uh, to bolster and sell out the uh, the rest of the tickets, and he'll he'll make enough from that. It's a chart ploy, don't you think? Yeah, but I don't think it would qualify for the charts. It it doesn't. Uh, I just read an article this morning that suggests it doesn't. But I think that that's what he was hoping. They'd actually <laughs> printed an article saying that yes, it will qualify for the charts, and then um, the authorities came in and said no, it won't. And Prince tried something like this in the U.S. a while uh, on the Musicology tour. He gave away a copy of Musicology. With every concert ticket purchased, it qualified for SoundScan and bolstered the sales of that record. Ah, okay. So mm. you think, it, but I mean, you know, surely before you do a deal like this, you'd kind of pretty much figure it out. You know, if somebody said, yeah, 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 sure, it'll qualify for the charts, that wouldn't really be enough. <laughs> to sort I, of I wouldn't think so. You, would you? I would, yeah, I wouldn't think so. Maybe Dave's right. Maybe it's uh, simply free publicity for the concert tour coming up. Yeah. He's doing 25 shows in the right. UK. It's so. I'm looking at an, uh, an article in the Guardian actually in the moment, and it does say that the uh, the man on Sunday's editor, Peter Wright, um, did say that uh, you have to you have to remember that Prince now makes most of his money as a performing artist, and also apparently he didn't have a uh, a record deal at the time, and so he was free to do the deal. I'm quoting the Guardian Unlimited website here. He was yeah. um, free to do the deal with the man on Sunday. But it's true. I think it raises two questions. It's like um, giving away music is that a good thing? This is something that's very close to um, uh, our hearts here in um, CMP Towers, where I'm talking talking from, because Sister Magazine to Post Our News is Music Week. And um, when the, the Mail on Sunday started this kind of series of giving away albums, and they started it with Tubular Bells a few weeks ago. Right. That was the first time a whole album had been given away with the original artwork. 
and then there was an outcry, and the retailers were an out uh, were an outcry, and the fact that um, they were giving away uh, an album that was um, priced, you know, eleven quid in the shops, but effectively giving it away for one pound forty. And then the Man on Sunday went to uh, carried on. They did it with Mick Hucknall, they did it with Dolly Parton, they did it with Madness, they've done it with Blondie, they've done it with Where Where Where, Duran Duran, a few others. But as much as you think it would be devaluing the music, apparently sales of the full price copy of Tubular Bells increased by 30% after the Man on Sunday gave away the album. Mick Hucknall's album. Uh, live in Cuba, Simply Red and Mick Hucknall. Um, the last UK tour sold out after the Live in Cuba double album was given away with The Man on Sunday. The Madness Live album that was given away, they had a 3,000% increase in hits on their website after they gave away the, the double album. So what The Man on Sunday ended up doing was printed, taking out a double-page advert in Music Week saying, we'd like to apologize to Dolly Parton and Mike Oldfield for raising all the sales of their, of their albums <laughs> by giving away the albums for free. And if anybody, uh, if you'd like the Mail on Sunday to apologize to anybody else, please call this number, blah, blah, blah. So it's, you know, which side do you come down on? The moral side says, yes, it's making music cheap and it's devaluing it because it's just something that comes away w free with your newspaper and and get you know, lost down the back of the sofa and is not treasured, but is actually producing the sales for these artists. So it's, there's no clear... There's no clear. Um, there's no clear opinion to be made. I think opinion to be had. It's just another marketing tool, essentially. I mean, ultimately, he hasn't put any uh, digital rights management or copy protection on that CD that he gave away with on the mail on Sunday. No, and it's been put on. It's up all over the internet, and people can download yeah. it. And yeah, it's streaming for free on MSN. Good. It should be listen. though, but this is the whole point. There's no point in selling records to people anymore because anybody can copy them. And even if you put digital rights management on or copy protection, people can copy them anyway because they'll work around it. So why not just simply give all music away? I mean, I think. I personally think there should be a massive music repository somewhere with a copy of every single song that's ever existed, and you should be able to go in there and click on it. And the artist should receive some kind of... Maybe you pay a cent to listen to a song, and the artist should receive some kind of royalty based on how much people listen to their music, because the actual physical media is completely valueless in this day and age, and, and if it's not now... In five years' time, it definitely will be. I mean, what's you know what value do people place on CDs anyway? And it's an archaic uh, media form, some scratchy old piece of plastic. Dave Spears, you've been very quiet. Do you have an opinion? Did you did you buy the Mail on Sunday for the Prince album? No, I didn't. No, no. I thought my favourite quote was um, from some, uh, I think it was music music retailer who said that. Uh, the artist formerly known as Prince will be soon known as the artist formerly available in record stores. <laughs> <laughs> My question is slightly different in that it's okay for bands that are already established to do this and take advantage of these opportunities, but there's no way the Mail on Sunday is going to pay any, any, anything like a reasonable amount of money for an unknown band or an up-and-coming band, and that's what kind of concerns me a little mm. bit, is that Actually, it just kind of paves the way for all the old school guys in, well, to yeah. clean up in this area. But what actually, to make you more money. Yeah. yeah. And what's going to happen? 
you know, for this kind of younger up and coming guys. I mean, this is all about the power of brand, isn't it? And branding and co-branding and cross-marketing and all that stuff. I mean, that's all it really is. There's one other question it does raise is whether Prince is cool <laughs> and whether what he did was um, in keeping with the sort of things that he, he's done. For instance, you know, changing his name to something that can be pronounced, even though when you pronounced it, it did include the word Prince in the formerly known as Prince title. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with the, 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 the Black Album, that was kind of deleted as soon as it was um, created. So, and he's, he's done quite radical things. So, to to do something as perverse as release a whole album on the Mail on Sunday is in keeping with his perversity. You could look at it like that and say, yeah, he is cool because he's always been cool and he's always been not not punk, but he's always been um, to to uh, you know iconoclastical or certainly going against the system to a certain degree. Well, or yeah. you could say that he's a sellout little. Well, you could and, do, yeah. you know, and he's put his album on the main on Sunday for God's sake. Well, perhaps. I mean, what do you think he's doing? Perhaps he's both. Well, Dave, I mean, the thing is, I can't believe you actually bought the paper and, and didn't buy it for the, for the CD. What are you doing? Well, I, I bought it for its forthright views on Middle England. <laughs> <laughs> they have a very good long-range weather forecast. Um, well i I mean yes i think prince achieved probably all of those things because let's not forget you know that he did was it sony bmg that he kind of like he he just just refused to make any records for and tattooed slave across his forehead or his cheek or whatever it was you know that's a pretty major thing to do and it seemed to coincide with a sort of dip in creativity but i mean Mm. nonetheless i mean why wouldn't it if he was that annoyed and, and sort of fed up with the situation why would he bother creating anything good until he was sort of happy with his lot. So it's done a great job of promoting it because I am now very keen to hear the tracks because I haven't heard them. And I'm keen, you know, I'd love to go and see him. And, you know, I have been a fan of Prince. Uh, I've been um, sadly disappointed with a lot of his stuff. But now I'm kind of, my interest is rekindled. So it's it's done the job. I think it's curious that this new single he's got... um it's got that awful guitar, awful sort of trebly guitar sound on it. And also, it, he's really struggling to make the words scan, isn't he? I love you, baby, but not as much as I love my guitar. And, you know, it's, um, maybe you could sample that. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'll leave that to Mark. <laughs> anyway, it's just an awful sound, an awful single. So, so good luck to him. All right, well, fair enough. Nick, I need to go, mate. All right, well, thanks very much, Dave. Um, it's been a pleasure as ever. SonicState.com Here's an interesting one about brands. There's a rumour going around that the Rolling Stones are actually going to not retire, but they're going to replace themselves with younger band members and put the band out as the new Rolling Stones. (laughs) What, so they can just keep coining it in from gigs? Exactly. I thought it was a good theory anyway. It was an interesting one. So who's going to play Mick Jagger? I don't know. Who was that bloke from Van Halen, the jump guy? Oh, yeah, what, Dave Lee? David Lee Roth. David yeah. Lee Roth. I can see him getting the gig. <laughs> oh, uh, I thought it was brilliant. You know, it's just sort of, okay, the brand is now the Rolling Stones. Now, this was really bizarre. This was, uh, I found this on Music Thing Blogspot, and it was a, a weird video. And it's from this guy called Gottfried Willem Reis, who's a sort of performance artist, and he has this sort of orchestra of robotic mechanical instruments. It's kind of like he's taken a... Uh, one of those sort of classic um, fairground organs and sort of taken it into little modular bits and each bit, you know, has various sensors on it and you wave your arms about and or control it via a laptop and it makes noise. But this, um, I'll just play you a little bit of it and I'll explain what was going on in the video. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now, uh, imagine, if you will, a sort of rather um, wispy gentleman with a, a crazy hair and beard and a sort of, it's hard to tell via YouTube video, but a sort of reasonably sort of fit um, blonde lady, naked, totally naked, in front of an audience in a sort of, um, you know, don't cough too loudly kind of auditorium. Uh, and uh, they're waving their body parts around this organ that sounds much, much more obscene than it really is. And, uh, and, and, and this is the result. And it was sort of performance art. And I just thought it was kind of... Obviously, people have paid good money for it. And I frankly thought it was um, pants. But without the pants, obviously, because they were naked. <laughs> but the band are called M&M Robots Orchestra. And it's this sort of concept that uh, Will Gottfried Wilhelm Reis has been uh, doing for quite some time. And uh, it doesn't... To be fair, it's not all naked. And there are other... Pl- performers there but uh, um the the music thing guy had sort of discovered this video and there are more videos of of similar uh, performances some naked some not but is it art and i suppose this this kind of i said does it trigger any memory of performances you've witnessed that have been le- uh, uh, and you've been left unable to believe someone actually put any time and effort into making it was the question yes absolutely i went personally to a art opening in the twin cities a couple of years ago at a at a um well-funded museum called the soap factory and there was a performance there by a young artist um i guess in quotes uh who had made a video of an actor or a friend or something dressed up in a large pink bunny suit and the actor or the the friend was uh fiending self-gratification in the bunny suit while jumping up and down and this artist was sitting in front of the screen it was rear projected and slamming uh, a modified 58 into the concrete floor making all manner of odd feedback and reverb type noises through the sound system and he did this for three hours straight <laughs> that sounds quite good <laughs> maybe, maybe. that's better than this anyway <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Did you did you manage to sort of uh, hold out for the whole gig? That was pretty amazing. No, no, it was actually just it was happening in one section of the gallery. So I I walked by for about you know five minutes to see if anything would anything would change or develop or if there was any kind of uh, arc to the performance. But there didn't appear to be, so I walked away. Dave, you must have seen something uh, in your time that made you wonder why people bothered to do this kind of thing. Yeah, loads and loads of gigs. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> Probably more often than not, I wonder that. But yeah, uh, it wasn't wrapped up as performance art. It was wrapped up as music. But uh, no, this um, kind of killed me, actually. There was another one that um, it was a similar kind of principle, but it was this woman pole dancing. Yes, the same lady, I think. Yes. Which she was quite, quite close to the front row and was, um, well, I don't know. No. No one was putting any dollars in a belt. The pole was actually some sort of sensor that triggered, again, some sort of musical things. But a lot of things about performance art, any kind of good art, is the ability to explain it in a sort of more interesting way than it actually is. So it gives it a context. But I was just wondering what on earth you could possibly say to make this in any way interesting. But what makes it good and what makes it not good? I mean, do you think if you were there, you might have felt differently about it? I mean, because when we went to the Faster Than Sound um, festival, you know, there were several installation pieces. And, you know, one might conceivably, you know, taken out of context, context sort of think, what a load of tribe. But, but I didn't at the time, and I don't know why, why I didn't there, and I, but I do about this. 
it just seemed totally pointless. It just seemed that the, the, the nakedness was there maybe as a sort of a shock value or an art value, perhaps. I mean, the most amusing thing about it was the fact that the guy's willy was jumping up and down. I mean, what do you guys call it in America? Johnson, I guess. Is a, <laughs> <laughs> it was just kind of bouncing up and down in time with this strange movements that he was doing that had nothing to do with really what was coming out of the machine that was supposed to be making music. It so seemed it very seemed unchoreographed. Totally pointless and yeah, unchoreographed and just there was, you know, I could have done that. There was no skill involved in it. It becomes interesting when you realize that the artist has some skill or maybe perceived skill even, but yeah. you know. I think that's the thing that, that I find problematic with a lot of, you know, a lot of what passes for performance art or concept art is that it seems that people just take these random elements and throw them together and expect people to accept it as some kind of artistic vision or statement and yet it seems to me that it just amounts to something banal you know that there's there's no point and like mark said we'll throw a couple naked bodies in there because maybe it gives it some credibility as an as an art performance but i i just i don't see that no, I can't things. say as I did, really. In contrast, you take something like the Modified Tour Orchestra. I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen that piece that we did from the Faster Than Sound thing. I know yeah. some people yeah, have. That's really cool. And, Brilliant. You know, he is essentially a performance artist. You know, the Modified Tour Orchestra is art, you know, at least in uh, in in construction and in values of, of construction. You know, it's got a, a kind of philosophy. It's got a very strong sort of sense of what he wanted to try and achieve. And it relates to all sorts of sort of uh, ephemeral and interesting theories. But the result is still very listenable and very enjoyable. In a, and that, in, co- in contrast to, to this, it just seems like such an inferior form. All right, there, guys. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Obviously, Dave Robinson has had to go early because uh, his room is uh, is is pre-booked and he he can only join us for a little while. But um, we'll say goodbye to PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Goodbye, Nick. Thank you much for having me. No problem. Glad to have you back. Glad to be back, too. And also, Dave Spears. Thank you. And also, uh, to Mark Tinley. Thank you very much. Did I mention that I'm using a new microphone this week? No, tell me tell me about it. What is it? I probably should. I'm using a PV Studio Pro M2, which is, is actually very, very nice. Is that a new one, then? Because I, I didn't realise PV were still kind of making mics and stuff well i didn't realize they were making mics and then i tried this out and i thought hmm, actually i really like the sound of it because it's got a sort of a high fizzy thing that reminds me of the very excited sort of u47 sound from the oh, okay. late 80s and it sort of does it without being a very expensive very excited u47 so I, I quite like it well if only the quality of this recording was high enough to do it justice i know you're sounding particularly good but um the so for some reason skype's bandwidth and uh, and encoding seems to have deteriorated over the last couple of weeks so um i hope that we'll be able to fix that for next week i only apologize for the for the quality for this week and remember folks uh, we'll be happy to accept any messages or emails or texts or any if you want to kind of tell us something or get something featured on the show you can do it in a variety of ways you can ring us on skype uh, we've got a skype handle of sonic talk uh, or you can call us in the US, that's on the Skype in number, which has got an answer phone on the end of it, that's on 312-376-8089. Obviously, you're outside the US, you'll have to dial your international code first. Uh, also, uh, you can call us in the UK, we've got a UK Skype in number, which is 0207-870-8616. And if you're outside the UK, dial plus 44-207-870-8616, or you can send us an MP3 message or anything else you fancy via email, sonictalk at sonicstate.com. 
Once again, thank you for joining us, everybody. Sonic State. Not home.